So we are working ourselves as a church through the first five books in the Bible, the five books of Moses, also called the Pentateuch. It's the Greek word for five books, also called the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for the law, or also in English, the law. So we're going to use those terms interchangeably. Some of you have asked what the Pentateuch means as we've gone through. I've used that term, so I'll remind us as we go through. Uh, The passage today is the passage um, really about the Garden of Eden. Uh, Meredith read a portion of that. And it's perhaps the most familiar story in the Old Testament. And it gives an account of why humanity is the way that it is and why the world in our present state is the way that it is. Namely, why do we endure so much suffering? Why do we inflict so much pain upon each other as human beings? Why do we experience so much pain and suffering from the world and all of its natural forces? And regardless of what we try to do with our medical and scientific and technological efforts, we realize ultimately that we cannot stop these these human nature forces that create suffering in our lives, as well as the, the forces of nature like hurricanes, floods, droughts, all of these other various forces that we cannot control. And we can see... What God warned humanity about in the garden, God said, if you eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will experience death. In fact, the phrase is, you will will be dying as you die, and in dying you die. So what God was saying is that you will experience a life of dying that will ultimately end in death. That was the warning that God gave to humanity. One of the experiences that we're going to see, we're not, obviously the, the, the entire section today is chapter 2, verse 4 through 426, and so it's almost a full three chapters. And what we're doing as we go through Genesis is we're, we're going at it a section at a time, and Genesis is divided up into sections by this repeated phrase, and these are the generations of. And so that means that there's these short little narratives that tell the story of the descendants of whoever is named. Well, this first section that we're looking at is a section describing the the life and what happened to the descendants of the heavens and the earth because man and woman first came from the ground created by God. And so that's the section that we're in. And one of the experiences that humanity had upon eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the experience of shame. Shame is a term for the feelings that we have when we realize that our lived experience, that the the honest truth about ourselves has fallen short from where we would like to see ourselves. We, we generally have higher opinions of ourselves than reality uh, really demonstrates to be true. And when we recognize that gap, what we would like to be and what we really are, that's the experience of shame. Sometimes the, the gap isn't very big, and so the feelings of shame are small, and we can brush them away and recognize, oh, 
But sometimes the gap is large. Sometimes the gap is large. And we can feel this individually, or we can feel it collectively. You know, the, uh, of late, over the last year and a half, there has been uh, efforts by, by some to, to pronounce a, a collective uh, shame or guilt upon um, Americans for the racism that exists in our country. That would be an example of a collective sense of shame. And obviously, we all have had experiences where we recognize that we are not who we would like to be, and we experience those on an individual level. And so the story of, of man and woman in the garden, among a lot of other things, so we're not, we, could, we could preach a hundred sermons out of this section, but today we're going to look at humanity's first experience of shame. And we're going to look and see if there's anything in the story, in their experience of shame, and in God's follow-up to that experience that gives us some resources and tools on how to deal with and overcome the shame that we experience. And so as I said, this, is a, this, this, this message today is from this, this passage described as the generations of the heavens and the earth. So basically, here's, here's the story through these three chapters. Chapter one had given us the prologue to the Bible, to these five books. It's the story of how God created the heavens and the earth, and it really describes not a temporal or historical creation as much as a, here's the order that God put into the world. And on top of that order, he created humanity. So chapter two begins with a more detailed and different explanation of the creation of humanity and the plants and, and the animals. And so God creates humanity, and he says, you may eat anything. You may eat it from any plant, any tree, its fruit, except the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, next to the tree of life. Well, man violated that provision, that, that prohibition. And humanity ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They experienced shame. They hid from each other. They hid from God. God pronounces punishments, which we're going to go over in more detail later, upon all of the characters in that violation of God's prohibition, and they begin to experience dying. They had children. Their oldest son killed their youngest son, and they have a third son, but then the oldest son, who was a murderer, uh, has descendants, and the descendants end up to be um, really prototypical. Uh, uh, typified in this man, Lamech, who was a violent tyrant with multiple wives. And so the generations of the heaven and the earth ends with this, with this picture of humanity typified in this violent, oppressive, polygamous man that brings harm to women and children. That's what humanity is at the end of chapter four. So we're four chapters into the Bible and we can see what has happened because of humanity's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the, tr the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or it really could be the tree of the knowledge of the good and the bad. Bad is a much broader description that contains the idea of evil, uh, but it describes really anything that is just not good. And I think that what it is more than anything is the obtaining of a moral conscience. To have knowledge of good and to have knowledge of evil is to really have 
a moral conscience. See, inherent in the prohibition, do not eat of this particular tree, is the possibility of a choice. A choice. God created humanity with the choice, and with the possibility of choice is the possibility of freedom. It's the possibility of self-rule. It's the possibility of autonomy from God. It's the possibility of independence. All of these things we highly value in our society. Freedom, self-rule, independence, autonomy. We don't want to be attached or under the rule of, of anyone or anything. But within the possibility of those things, within the possibility of choice and the promise of all of these great ideals is the possibility of disobedience. And so humanity, just as all of us would and all of us do, humanity chose freedom, humanity chose autonomy, humanity chose self-rule, and humanity chose disobedience. And I think that, you know, they're, they're, it says that the text says that their eyes were opened when they ate of that tree. And so they began to see bad. They saw their nakedness. They didn't become naked. They saw their nakedness. And I think that what they also, so it's, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have a tendency to focus on the knowledge of the evil that they experienced but I think that if you think about, well, what was the knowledge of good? Because that would have had to have been a realization as well. I think the realization of the knowledge of good is that they didn't realize what they had. They didn't realize what they had prior to the eating of that tree. God told them that dying, they would die. Did they know what that meant? Did they know what it meant to die? We don't know. God told them that they would die, but they went and chose that anyway. And then the text says this, then there, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they, they saw that they were naked. They didn't become naked. They saw that they were naked. They saw their vulnerability and they experienced the feelings of shame, which is in contrast to the experience that chapter 2 ended up with. It said they were both naked and unashamed when God brought both man and woman together to be husband and wife. They were unashamed. Again, shame is this gap between what we would like to think of ourselves and really the truth of who we are. And the wider that gap, the more shame that we feel. So in the, in the experience of shame, they did what we all do. Let's figure out some way to cover up what we've done. Let's figure out some way to hide the shame. And so they sewed the leaves of plants together to cover themselves. That worked for them relationally. Man and woman could now come together again 
covering their privates with these fig leaves, and they no longer hid themselves. But it did not satisfy their consciences in regard to being in the presence of God. What they did to cover themselves worked for themselves. It did not work to ease their moral conscience when they were once again in the presence of God. And here's a curious thing. You know, as you read through chapters 1 and chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, there's never any, the text doesn't record, I should say, any effort that humanity makes to know God, to spend time with God. It's all actions that God takes towards them. But the first time that the text records their attentiveness to God is right now. It says they heard God walking in the garden or speaking in the garden. The word could be either one. And so I think we have to ask the question, are we only capable of hearing or noticing God when we are faced with a sense of our own inadequacy, a sense of our own vulnerability, and a sense of our own shame? This is the first time they heard God when they recognized and experienced shame. And I think we also have to ask the question, prior to this experience, did they understand to that point how dependent upon God they were? Did they know they needed God for this experience of moral righteousness? Did they know that they needed God to live forever? Was this the knowledge of good that they were also unaware of? That they were dependent upon God for their well-being? So the situation unfolds, and God hands out punishments that fit the crime. So the serpent... Remember, the serpent is a, is a created animal, and God told humanity to have dominion over the created animals. And so here you have a created animal attempting to usurp humanity. So it's, it's attempting to elevate itself above humanity. It's wanting to lead the woman into this violation against God. So in his effort to become greater than or to master humanity, God actually punishes the serpent and says, you will be lower than any of the other beasts of the field, and you will literally eat dust. Now, the woman, the woman, she had two punishments. The pain that you experience in childbearing is going to be much greater and you're going to be in conflict with your husband. See, she, she disobeyed the instructions her husband had given her that God had given him to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so she was usurping the instruction of her husband and introducing conflict into her marriage. Now, how does this... The, the one commentator I was reading, so why the childbirth thing? And this is, a, this is speculation. You know, if, if we consider what was happening there in the garden, and we didn't get into the text today, but, but the woman is reasoning with the serpent, going back and forth, and the serpent is trying to deceive her, and the text says that she saw that the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was attractive, 
is beautiful. It was good for food, and it would make one wise. So she was reasoning. And what was, and, and what, again, this one commentator, he said, you know, it's, it's, it's the human act of reasoning through things. It's an, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an activity of pride in elevating yourself above the instruction that God had given her. Literally, she was getting a big head. And what is it that brings pain to women in childbearing is the big head. So now human, humans are known for their big heads. I don't know. It's speculation. The text isn't clear. But those are the two things. Humans are now big-headed, bringing pain. And then man, he neglected to care for creation, instead let creation lead them. He neglected caring for his wife because the text says that he was right there with her. He did nothing to counter the serpent. He did nothing to stop her from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was just there doing nothing except looking at his wife naked. That's what he was doing. And so what happens to him is that he's going to experience marital conflict as well. And so there's going to be this conflict between men and women. Who is going to, who is going to rule the house? And instead of the earth being a life-giving thing that he is responsible to steward and hold dominion over, the earth is now going to be a source of pain and will eventually lead to his death, and literally the earth is going to swallow him up. So the punishments fit the crime. In their pursuit of autonomy and freedom, which means, God, we don't need you. Well, without God, creation destroys them. You know, but God's work was not done. So remember, back in Genesis chapter 1, God worked for six days, and God made all of these things. He made the, the lights in the skies, the sun, the moon, the stars. He made the plants. He made the ground come up from the waters. He made the atmosphere in the skies, and he made the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds and humanity. For six days, he made all of these things. And then he took a day off. In fact, it's a day off that never ends. There is no, there was morning and there was evening, a seventh day. The text leaves us with this idea that God is going to not work and rest and experience life with humanity whom he created on this seventh day. But here on the seventh day, God makes something again. He makes a better covering. He makes a better covering. See, Humanity sewed fig leaves together. Worked for them, it didn't work for God. It didn't work for their experience with God, is how I should say. They could not stand before God with the meager efforts that they made to cover their sin and their guilt and their shame. But God did make something to cover them. And he did it on his day off. He did it on his day off. The blood of animals was shed because it said that God provided clothing for man and for woman from the skins of animals. Now, God could have used cotton from plants. God could have used silk. But God didn't use these things. God shed blood to cover the shame of man and woman. 
And after God covered them with these animal skins, they no longer needed to hide from God. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is what do we do with our shame? What do we do when we are aware of the bad in ourselves? And so, you know, if you think about it, as children, we don't really grasp this, but there comes a point in time where we recognize who we are. And our moral innocence is gone, and we're now accountable. But sometimes, even as adults, when we're accountable, we don't see who we really are. And then we either do something, or somebody brings up something and says, hey, I, I observe this in you. And you're like, whoa, I, I didn't ever see that. Well, in various ways, as human beings, we become aware of the bad in ourselves. We, we have knowledge of our bad. But just like the first humans, we often hide from each other that's why we isolate ourselves at times. We hide our sin, and in hiding our sin, we can hide our shame. We often even deceive ourselves. Now, this really, we, we start justifying ourselves and telling, ah, that's not really what I was doing. That's really wasn't my motivation. My heart was right. Well, what happens is that as we continue to hide and as we continue to lie, we keep sowing more fig leaves together. And the fig leaves dry up and fall off and we get more fig leaves. This is a substantial source of our anxiety and depression and other mental health problems, whether they're clinical or not. We all have mental health problems. Because we see and we increasingly recognize within ourselves that we are two people. There's the people, there's the person that we would like to be, and there's the person that we really are. And the longer we go in trying to hide who we really are and keep, keep trying to be who we would like to be but continue to fail, the longer we continue to do that, the longer we continue to live duplicitous lives, deceptive lives. Paul says that we, we, we keep following deceptive desires, desires that promise that we can be somebody that we are really not. Or we're not what others would like us to be or expect us to be. Or we really are what our shame is telling us we are. That's our fear. Am I really this person that shame is saying I am. But I want to say that the experience of shame is not all bad. Because within it, there is an acknowledgement that, that there is a good. There is a good. We may just be aspiring to it, but at least that we recognize it. And that's part of having knowledge of both bad and good, good and evil. Yes, we become aware of how evil and bad we are, but that means that we also can recognize that there is a good that we can strive for. 
But the truth of it is, the truth of it is that we do need something to cover us. We do need something to cover us. We do need something that gives us, that, that hides our, our guilt so that we are guiltless. We need something that hides our shame so that we are in reality who we would like to be. You know, we may not, you may not agree with this interpretation because what I'm essentially saying is that you know, we have a tendency to, everything, to think that everything was like great and perfect prior to their eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, that, and that's just not the case. They were humanity without a moral conscience. No understanding of good and no understanding of bad or of evil. What I think the text shows is that humanity's movement into, into freedom, into autonomy, into self-rule, into choice, and into disobedience was really the movement of us becoming human. And that unless we had the knowledge of our evil selves and the experience of shame, we would have never come to the point where we recognized our need for God. Humanity does not demonstrate any inclination to move towards God out of a sense of need for him prior to this incident. So whether you agree with that interpretation or not, it does match our experience, doesn't it? Because I would say this is, I mean, I know this is true of me. We don't pursue God until we need him. Until all of our efforts to sow fig leaves together fail. And we kind of just get to the point where, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that, uh, yes, I am an evil person. I'm going to confess that, and I'm going to recognize that I need God to cover me. I think that, that we would all have to say that that's our experience. The knowledge of our bad should eventually lead us to the knowledge of God. But God provided more knowledge of good in his punishments. In his punishment to the serpent, he told the serpent something. He said that the offspring of woman would eventually crush his head, kill him. The serpent would crush the heel of the offspring of woman, but if you're going to have something crushed and survive, you'd rather have your heel crushed than your head crushed. We cannot survive the crushing of our heads. And so there's going to be some conflict between the serpent and the offspring of this woman, but the, the offspring of the woman is going to come out on top. And the offspring of the woman is going to deal a fatal blow to the, to the serpent. And we can see in the text that man and woman recognize the power of this promise in how they respond to their punishments. Immediately after the punishments, man renames his wife and calls her Eve. Her name is not Eve until after this situation. Up until that point, it's man and woman or Ish and Isha. But now she's Eve, which means mother of all life. 
She was mother before in terms of having descendants, but now man recognizes, Adam recognizes that she is going to give birth to a son that is going to destroy the serpent and counteract the effects of that serpent, not only for humanity, but for all things, all living things. The son will counteract the serpent. And woman, she has her first child, Cain, in chapter 4. And the, most English translations do not get this right because it's, it's a difficult phrase and it seems really unbelievable. Most English translations says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. The text actually reads, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. So she recognizes that, that this child that she is going to give birth to that has the power to destroy the serpent, is going to have to have some sort of godlike power that they as humanity didn't have because they could not overcome the serpent. And so you see just signs of hope in this offspring here at the very beginning, at the consequence, after the consequence of the punishments. And then the rest of the, the, rest of the Bible... The rest of the Bible is the revealing of who that offspring is. That's what the rest of the Bible is concerned about. And eventually we get to Jesus, the God-man born of woman. And you can say, here in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, it's already talking about Jesus? Absolutely. It's not typology. It's not a metaphor. It's not imagery. It is beginning to explain and to tell us as readers what this book is all about. We don't know that it's Jesus yet, and we don't know a lot of things about who this offspring is going to be or what he's going to do. That's really what the rest of the Old Testament is about. If you want to know Jesus, know your Old Testament. Because when Jesus comes, he says, I have fulfilled everything that the Old Testament has written about me. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Scholars call this, three for, uh, this verse here, 315, that this promise of an offspring of woman that would destroy the serpent, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. The first gospel. And that's why the book of Genesis is organized the way it is. These are the generations of. It's not tracing offspring and family just because it's the story of Abraham pops up in chapter 12 and then is the foundations of the nation of Israel. The story of the nation of Israel is a smaller part of the bigger story of who is this offspring. And so Genesis works very hard. The author of the book of Genesis, the Holy Spirit, and Moses, and people that were compiling the Bible before Jesus came, wanted the reader to know clearly what its intent was from the very beginning. We are looking for the identity of this offspring that will eventually come from the nation of Israel and who will eventually be Jesus Christ, which is why the book of Matthew begins, the first book of the New Testament, and these are the generations of. The author of the book of Matthew is connecting his writing to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and the rest of the sections of Genesis. So eventually we get to Jesus, the God-man born of woman, who took on humanity but remained faithful to God and didn't vie for independence from him, and he shed his blood to cover our shame. And we can put on Christ, just as man and woman put on those clothes that God brought them, we can put on Christ through faith in him. Is Jesus enough through the shedding of his blood and the living of his life to cover 
my shame and to give me a sense of righteousness. That is the promise of the gospel. That is exactly the promise of the the gospel. Jesus takes our sin and he takes our shame so that we can take his righteousness. And in our very identities, we can be who we have always wanted to be, good and true. It's tempting for us to say, I wish I could go back. I wish I could do something different. I wish I wouldn't have made these decisions and choices that have brought harm and hurting to me and to others. But that is not the point. We are human beings. We never had the ability to be anything different. God did not give us the ability to be perfect. We did not have a moral conscience. We did not know what good was. We did not know what bad was. To be human is to be naked, vulnerable, and ashamed. We're free, but we're free in being vulnerable and naked and ashamed. And it's the destruction we bring upon ourselves. Man and woman did what they did, but we all do what we do, and we sin, and it brings these things upon us. And the promise of the gospel, not only did Jesus Christ come to, to, to take our shame, but Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that the death that we experience as a consequence of Adam's sin and our own sin is nothing compared to the life that Jesus Christ brings us. What we have in Christ is much more than what we lost in Adam. What we have in Christ is much more than what you would have created in your own world without God. And it is knowledge of your sin and knowledge of your shame that exposed you and made you knowledgeable of God so that you would pursue him and take upon a greater righteousness than you could ever have. So what do we do? When we feel bad and we feel shame, that's when we confess it like man and woman did. When God came and said, did you do this? They said, yep, we did it. But it was that person's fault. <laughs> confess it. Acknowledgement. Acknowledge it. It is, it is God exposing you to yourself. Jesus can cover it. And when somebody confronts you with something that you've done, don't try to run, don't try to hide, don't try to lie. Acknowledge it. It is knowledge of evil that God is bringing to you so that you grasp for and reach out and take up a greater knowledge of good and the covering that Jesus Christ can give you. It will be much more. Your experience of life in Christ will be much more than what you can have in hiding your shame and keep sewing fig leaves together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this, this word. Thank you for the, just the, the intricate, complex, and yet beautiful and simple text of Scripture that you give us to see inside of ourselves and human nature. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church to see that, that the life we have in Christ is much more than what we would ever have in any other way. And that the life that we have in Christ is much more than what the world can provide. Lord, help us to see that this is the very foundation of our witness the living of a life free of shame and guilt and full of joy because Jesus has covered us. In your son's name we pray, amen.